Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask, as we always do, for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would open our eyes, enable us to hear from your word. We understand that that we need continual exposure to the word of God, which is truth, in order to be sanctified by your word in order for our minds to be renewed by your word. And so, Father, we approach your text this morning in faith. And we thank you for teaching us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mrs. Morrison was a third grade teacher, and she was in the the fall of of her maybe about fifth year of teaching, and she was holding her parent-teacher conferences. And it was time to have her conference with the parents of a student named Daniel. Now, Daniel was doing okay, average work, but his real problem was disorganization. He'd been late several times to school. They, They were wondering where he was, and he would always wander in several minutes late, maybe even up to half an hour late. He would forget to bring things home. He would forget to bring things back to school. He would have trouble getting permission slips signed. Uh, His desk area was just a a mass of of jumbled uh, disorganization. And so she was looking forward to the conference with his parents. Well, almost at the end of the allotted time slot, the parents of Daniel came in with just a couple of minutes remaining, and they had the leftovers of their drive-thru meal, and they said, we're sorry for being late. Uh, we, we We hadn't eaten yet, and we were running out of time. We just had to get something to eat. She said, that's okay. We've still got a couple minutes. And as they sat down, uh, Mrs. Morrison noticed that uh, Dad had two different colored socks on. And then they got started with the, with the uh, conference, and, and she said, now did you bring Daniel's portfolio? Because each student was sent home with a portfolio of work that they were supposed to bring to the conference. And they said, oh no, we, we forgot. Uh, I knew there was something that we were forgetting to bring. And she said, no, that's, that's okay. And she said, look, I'll, I'll get right to it. Da- Daniel's doing okay academically, but he's, he's disorganized. And she said, for example, he's been late to school eight times this fall already. It's only been you know, two and a half months into the school year. If you, live, if you live too far away, I know he doesn't ride the bus, but maybe you could consider giving him a ride to school. And they said, oh, no, no, we don't live that far away. Just go to the end of the block and we're around the corner where, the, where that blue house, second one on, on the left, Mrs. Morrison squinted her eyes and said, yeah, and they said, yeah, it's Daniel's play set is out there. We've got a couple big tractor tires on the front yard. And Mrs. Morrison said, oh, yeah, I think I know that house. Is there, isn't there a freezer in the front yard, too? And they said, oh, yeah, that hasn't worked for years, but we just took the lid off of it, and they pretend it's a boat, and they have a lot of fun. <laughs> she said, yeah, well, okay, how about this? Can you just help Daniel get a little more organized and Dad said, well, we'll do our best, but we're not that organized ourselves. He said, to tell you the truth, around our house, we're, we're just kind of all over the place. And Mrs. Morrison thought to herself, this is an honest man. The church in Corinth was all over the place. The church in Corinth had the equivalent of, of a rusty swing set and tractor tires and an old freezer and weeds in, in their front yard. Their doctrine and practice was not in order, but disorder. The Corinthian church was all over the place. And we've seen examples of it in chapters 1 through 7. We've touched on a few of these. But here in our passage, Paul calls them out on it. Yes, he delivers teaching on marriage and divorce and widowhood, remarriage, betrothal. And they needed that teaching. But their greatest need is to see and understand that following Christ faithfully is of first importance. It's more important than, for example, marriage. Following Christ is that important. Their unsettled state had reached a crisis level and it needed immediate attention until they started to order their lives as a church and as believers. They were going to remain all over the place. There was no hope for them. So Paul gives them knowledge of God's truth. And it is only through knowledge of the truth of God that we can live ordered right lives before God. 
Let's read this passage. And we're going to hear teaching. We're going to hear some universal teaching on, on betrothal and marriage and remarriage. But listen to what else he's saying. He's speaking to their disordered state. Let's begin at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if you betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, but how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, that his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Paul is returning to his teaching on on marriage. Last week we we saw the the message, you've already arrived, wherever you are, wherever your current life setting is, just stay there, God assigned that to you. And now he's coming back to instructions on marriage. So he says to the betrothed, and betrothed is literally young unmarried women, you'll see the footnote if you've got ESV virgins. But he's going to expand this to include both men and women who have been betrothed to someone. Remember, this is that... Uh, kind of hyper-engagement state. This was like engagement, but, but crank it up a couple notches. It, it needed divorce proceedings in order to dissolve a betrothal in, in the first century. So it was a little more intense than what we normally think of. He says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. This is very similar to what we looked at when we saw verses 10 and 12 in the this, in this same chapter. Remember when he said, not I, but the Lord, or, or this is I, this is the Lord saying. He's making a distinction between something that is actual verbatim teaching from the incarnate mystery of Jesus Christ to what he's saying as an apostle of Jesus Christ it does not mean that what he's about to say is any less authoritative for us today. This is still 100% inerrant, inspired scripture. So let's make sure we understand that. In verse 26, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Present distress. What does he mean by present distress? Now we are going to take a good portion of the message this morning to make sure we understand what the phrase present distress means. Because whatever it means, it will play the majority function in how we understand and apply this passage. It will dictate what we take away from this portion of Scripture. We must determine the meaning of present distress. So... We're going to, to show our work. Do you remember when you were in school and the teacher assigned you math problems 1 through 10, and then she said, and on your homework, I want you to show your work. Remember that? 
She said, I, that, that means she doesn't want to just see the answer. Maybe you've looked up the every other answer in the back of the textbook kind of thing. She, she wants to see that you've done the work. She wants to see how you got to that answer. So it's important for us this morning that we show our work. This is one of those cases, and it doesn't happen all the time when we go through a passage. This is one of those cases where we need to know what it isn't just as surely as we know what it is. So here are the four options that have been historically or traditionally presented as the meaning for present distress. Number one, the imminent coming of Christ. Number two, the time between Jesus' first and second coming. That's called the interadvental period. Jesus' first advent was when he came uh, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus' second advent or second coming is when he's going to return at the end of the age. So everything in between there is called the interadvental period. That's number two. Number three, a famine. And number four, something else. So present distress. The, if you look in your ESV, if you have one of those, you'll see a footnote that says, also translated as impending. So we've got to choose, first of all, is this present or is this impending? Is Paul talking about something that's already there or is he talking about something that isn't there yet, something that's in the future? Present should be translated as present. It should be present. When Paul uses this word elsewhere in the New Testament, he refers to something that is present, not something that's coming in the future, not something that might happen or that will happen, something that is. For example, Galatians 1, 3, and 4. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. That means right now. Not an age that's coming. It's the present evil age. Hebrews 9, the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. He means the age right now. Present, currently. And then in Romans, Paul uses the same word to contrast present with the future. That's always a a really good way to tell what somebody means when they use it as an antonym for, for another word. Romans 8, 38, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. It's that present word. It's the same word that's being used here. So it means now. It means right now. Not something that's on the way. The second word is distress. Now the main thing we have to determine when looking at this word is, is this distress something temporary, something short-term that's, that's kind of endured and then, and then is over with and we move on from? Or is this distress something long-term? Is this, is this something permanent that's kind of in place and, and set in place for a long time? It seems to be the latter. Look at 2 Corinthians 6, 4-5. through 5. This is where Paul's listing off a lot of his hardships. He says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. So it's listed along all these other things that are temporary. You, you, you can't have continual, perpetual sleepless nights, otherwise, sleepless nights, otherwise you'd never get to sleep. You can't have ongoing, permanent hunger, otherwise you'd starve to death. These are temporary things. And there are other passages, likewise, in the New Testament that indicate that distress, as Paul uses it in the Bible, means temporary, something relatively short-term. So having understood that, we understand that those words mean something that is a present distress or present calamity, meaning something that's happening right now and something that is not permanent. It's something that you can get over with and move on from. Now let's go back and look at those options. Number one, the imminent coming of Christ. Present distress cannot be referring to the time of upheaval and distress immediately preceding the return of Christ. How do we know that? First, Paul is not living or teaching like the return of Christ is imminent. He tells believers in Thessalonica, do not quit your jobs and wait around for the return of Christ. Get to work. If you don't eat, or excuse me, if you don't work, you don't eat. Get back to work. Paul tells the church in Corinth in this very letter, in chapter 16, he plans to visit them in the future. In fact, he says, uh, it's possible that I'm going to spend next winter with you. Does that sound like someone who's, who's waiting on, his, on the edge of the seat, waiting for Christ's return? Or does that sound like someone who's making plans? 
In other places, he tells people to have children. He tells Timothy to appoint elders in all the churches. If Christ's return was imminent, we would have no need for overseeing the church on an ongoing basis. So he's not telling them to live like Jesus' return is imminent, and he himself is not living as if Christ is going to return any moment. Secondly, when Paul does speak directly to the issue of Christ's return, he says it will not happen until there is a final rebellion. I can clearly remember as a child being taught with someone who is very animated and very excited saying, Christ could return at any moment, any minute. He could just show up. The the sky will roll back and he could return any second. And, And that got me all excited. Well, as I grew up later, I realized that this person was wrong. This person wasn't teaching me from the Bible. This was something they heard or something they believed. When we look at what actual scripture says... That's not true. Let's look at it. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. Paul's not hinting around. He's speaking directly about the second coming of Christ. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So whenever Christ's return is, and we don't know when that is, but we do know it won't come until what Paul simply calls the rebellion happens. That has to come first. Well, the rebellion was not happening. It was not taking place. We know that with 100% certainty because it's been 2,000 years and Christ has still not yet returned. So there's no way that the present distress of 1 Corinthians 7, 26 could be referring to the final rebellion and the general upheaval and distress that will immediately precede Christ's return. So that's not it. Let's scratch off number one. What about number two? The general period between Jesus' first and second coming. We call this the inter-advental time period. This is probably the one where most believers kind of default head to when they look at that phrase, present distress. And they normally think it's probably just kind of this general time. Uh, We're in the last days, that's true. We are in the last days. And there's going to be general persecution uh, towards the church during this time. Well, nowhere else in the New Testament does Paul teach believers to live by a different set of life rules during, uh, specifically concerning marriage, than they have for the rest of world history just because we're in the last days. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11, he says, but since we belong to the day, now keep in mind this particular passage is within the context of just talking about the return of Christ. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet of, of hope of salvation, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So in a passage where he is plainly talking about the return of Christ and this this period where the church has to exist before his second coming, there's nothing about remaining single. There's nothing about don't marry. He says, build one another up, just as you are doing. Kind of business as usual. Keep going in the same direction you are going. In Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, where he talks specifically about husbands and wives, There is nothing about not marrying or holding off on marriage because of the present distress. If he didn't want the church to be marrying in the advental time period, do you think that there might be something included when he speaks directly to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, but he doesn't. Also, the interadvental period does not fit the meaning of the word distress. Remember, we just looked at that and how it's used in Scripture consistently. It's something short-term, temporary, something that happens and then you move on from. This inter-advental time period is, the, is just simply the way things are from Christ's first advent to the end of the world. This is not something that the church moves on from. This is something the church remains in for all time until the return of Christ. So it's not fitting the actual definition of present distress. And then finally, if that wasn't all enough, and the reason I'm stressing this so much is because when we get to verse 29, people are saying, aha, see, it does mean the interadvental time period. No, that's not what this present distress is talking about. If this isn't all enough, are we really convinced? Uh, let's put it this way. If you think that the present distress 
is talking about the time in between Jesus' first and second coming, the time we are currently living in, then what you're saying is Paul's instructions in verse 27 is telling every single person not to marry. Do you really believe that? I'm not convinced. And the church isn't either because we have not practiced that for the last 2,000 years. We don't tell singles, don't marry, because we're living in between Christ's first and second coming. That's just unconvincing. It's not it. Well, scratch number two off the list. How about number three, a famine? There are some that think that Paul is talking about a regional grain shortage when he says present distress. Uh, the social unrest that would presumably uh, accompany such a widespread famine. And they point to extra-biblical sources that say there were uh, grain shortages in the 40s and 50s, and just generally during that time period. And they say, well, that would have produced such social unrest that Paul would give this advice not to marry. Well, that would fit the the second part of Paul's phrase, present distress. A famine would be something short-term that they could get over and move on from. So that that works. But what about the first part, present? That means it has to be going on right then. And when we actually look at the evidence, there is very, very little evidence to pinpoint when exactly these famines occurred. Now, Paul wrote this between, uh, in somewhere between 53, 55 A.D. We don't know for sure if there was a famine in 53 to 55 A.D. Moreover, Paul talks about the Corinthians later. If we continue on in the book, he talks about um, regulations and what to do about meat sold in the marketplace. He also talks about uh, in, when they come to gather for, for the Lord's Supper, some are eating too much. So it seems that um, it just seems difficult to believe that present distress would meet a famine when later in the same letter food was readily available. And then finally, how exactly would food shortages impact whether someone marries or not? Maybe if the social unrest was so bad that things were just in a continual state of of rioting and, and looting and and the streets were unsafe, I guess then you would might want to hold off on a wedding celebration. But that's not what the Bible presents Corinth as, and that's not what the extra-biblical evidence presents Corinth as. In fact, Corinth is presented as this freewheeling boom town of merchants and trade, of up-and-coming people making name for themselves, and money's flowing, there's pagan temples. It's a very social environment, not a hot zone of gangs roaming the streets looking for food. So options one through three aren't a good fit, which leads us to the question, what does Paul mean when he says present distress? It's not the imminent coming of Christ. It's not the interadvental time period between when Christ came first and when he's going to come again in the future. And I don't think it's a famine. Context, context, context. Let's ask ourselves this. Is Paul writing to the church in Corinth or is he writing to the world? He's writing to the church in Corinth, specifically. Is the church in Corinth experiencing any type of present distress? Well, let's see. Uh, The church has splintered into subgroups because of their immature worldly uh, worldview. A man is sleeping with his stepmother and the church is ignoring it. The church refuses to practice church discipline. Believers are taking each other to court and suing them so they can legally rob each other and take them for all they're worth. Church members are visiting prostitutes. Married couples are trying to practice celibacy. They're divorcing each other based on false teaching. And we haven't even touched on the the worship abuses. It says later we're going to find out they were getting drunk during communion. Does that qualify as present distress? Absolutely. They are all over the place. They are all over the place. If that was going on in a church today, the elders would very quickly declare a state of emergency. If if probably one of those things was happening in a church today, they were all happening. They were all over the place. That's the present distress. That's what makes sense based on context. That's who he's writing to, these ones experiencing this present distress. Paul is saying, the fact that you're all over the place with all sorts of serious issues of doctrine and practice, what he's telling them is, just stay put. 
Now is not the time to either get married or get divorced thinking on, based on false teaching. Now is not the time to, to, to think about some of these big decisions that you're probably going to regret later because you're basing them on false teaching. Just calm down. You need to get your house in order first. This present distress has thrown you all over the place. The believers were still too worldly, too raw. They were in the midst of an incredibly turbulent church-wide crisis. Their lives were in complete upheaval. They were attempting to shift gears from being worldly unbelievers. Remember, this was first-generation Christianity. They were trying to shift gears from being worldly unbelievers in a, in a, in a pagan worship, a sexually immoral, saturated culture, to faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And that shifting was proving to be somewhat difficult. And they were all over the place. Paul's saying once the church becomes more established, once believers get some of these issues squared away, like uh, solid teaching, apostolic instruction on enacting church discipline, understanding what godly marriage is supposed to look like, uh, healing the internal visions that have split the church up, stop suing each other, uh, stop thinking that prostitution is okay for you to engage in, and etc. Once these waters have calmed down, then, then there will be time for marrying in normal life. But right now, put these things on hold. You need to deal with the present distress. You're all over the place. In verses 27 through 29, Paul's saying, hold off on any big life changes until you've shed your worldliness, until you know what it means to follow Christ faithfully. Now is not the time. And then in the first part of 20, but if you do, that's fine. You haven't sinned. You see what he's doing? He's bringing this calming presence to this church that is all over the place. He's saying, look, please don't do this right now, but, but if you do, it's okay. It's all right. It's not a sin. Verse 28, practically speaking, he tells them, getting married is not going to make all your troubles go away. Remember, they, they had all kinds of teaching, and some of them were thinking, well, if I can just get married, remember that was last week's message, if I can just move from this location to that location, if I can just move my life setting from single to married, then things will be okay. This is him saying, no, marriage brings its own difficulties. He calls them worldly troubles. And then in verse 29, he shifts and he tries to refocus them on what is important. So he says that the appointed time has grown very short. And then in verses 30 and 31, he follows up with a couple examples of how that should impact their lives. So I, I understand why somebody can read verse 29 and then go back and read into present distress and say, oh, I guess he's talking about the time right now. But it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the definition. And it doesn't, practically, it just... It doesn't sell. I'm not buying that, that, that the church should be practicing no marriage for 2,000 years. That just doesn't work. It's something that is a current crisis that they're eventually going to move on from, and then we can return to life as normal. But here in 29, he says the time has grown short. What he means by that is that in light of Jesus' coming and the new covenant being established, it's been made plain that God's people now stand at the end of redemptive history. The future end point is now in plain view. The next event on God's redemptive calendar is Jesus' return. There, there's, there's no more calling of Abraham to be a, a nation. There's no more exodus going to take place. There's no more Pentecost that's going to happen and ascending of the Holy Spirit. There is gathering and perfecting the saints as the church fulfills the Great Commission until Christ's return. That's it. That's the, that's the big event on the calendar. So, he says, you need to rethink marriage and everything else based on this reality. In general, he's saying believers should not live as if this world is all there is. He's, he's already helped them cleaning up and becoming a little more organized. And that's really what this whole letter is. Remember, we called this series a roadmap for raw Christians. Everything in this letter is Paul giving them teaching and instruction on how to order their lives rightly so they can live before God faithfully. So here's what he says. Yes, marry in the Lord, but do not think that life is all about marriage. We are not to love our husbands and wives more than we love Jesus Christ. Yes, we will have loved ones that die, and it's human to feel sad and mourn. That's normal. But we don't let grief overcome us. 
We don't let it paralyze us for the rest of our lives. Yes, there are going to be times, uh, good times, being joyful, being happy, but let's not let the pursuit of a good and happy life become our number one goal. We're not simply pleasure seekers. That's not the purpose of life. Glorifying God, following Christ faithfully, that's our goal. Yes, you're going to be buying new things, big and exciting things, but we need to understand that God did not create us to build our lives around things and possessions. There are strong warnings in the Bible about making money an idol. We are to remember that everything is temporary. It's not lasting or eternal. We're simply stewards passing through. Can't take any of it with us. Yes, we are to live in this world. It's fine to engage in business, and we all have, to some extent, some extent dealings with the world. But we'll not get sucked into the world system. We can't be deceived by finding our worth and our value or identity in anything that the world has to offer. Remember, nothing of this world will remain when Christ returns. It's all passing away. So he concludes, the present form of this world is passing away. And then 32 and 35, Christ first. Paul instructs them further on marriage. But he points something out to them as raw, worldly, brand new believers that they may not even have considered. He's essentially saying, look, from a purely practical standpoint, the single person is capable of devoting more of their life to Christ than the married person. Have you thought about that? In in the midst of them trying to, to figure out, should I get married, should I get divorced? He's saying, look, have you even considered what those decisions, or or how those decisions will, will impact your ability to follow Christ? He tells them, for your own benefit, not to lay any constraint on you. Constraint on you. In other words, he's not trying to wrangle as many people as possible into, his, into a life of singleness. He's pointing out a practical reality. He's teaching them what's important. Have you even considered what being married or not being married will, will do to your life from a, from a purely kind of hours per week type of standpoint? Do you understand that? And by saying this, he's saying everything you do, every decision in your life should be weighed in the balance against how it will affect your ability to follow Christ. And then in 36 through 38, he's talking to those in the church who are currently betrothed, this kind of hyper-engagement state. He's teaching if someone does not have the gifts of celibacy, then they should go ahead and get married. But if someone does have the gift of celibacy, then they should remain in this single state right now, for sure, in this, in this time of upheaval. So yes, in 25 through 28, he's saying, look, just calm down, don't do anything, just stay put in this current distress. But here he's telling them, if it's going to be a problem, go ahead and get married. This is very similar to what he told them back in verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter, where he said, but if if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Same thing. He's kind of repeating himself. And then concluding instruction in verse 38, it's his way of saying, you're good to go if you marry. If not, that's fine too. Um, in light of what I just said about the practical standpoint of, of singles being having more time, then even better. Great. And then in 39 through 40, more solid instruction. Remember, this is more teaching, knowledge, so that they can have it up here, so then they can live it out in their life. He's teaching them what is right, what ought to be according to God. Marriage is for life, but when the marriage partner dies, the surviving partner may remarry in the Lord. May, not must. A surviving widow in Paul's judgment would be happier if she remains single. <clears throat> he seems to have older widows in mind here. How do we know that? Because of what he teaches in 1 Timothy 5.14. He says this, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. I think we get this, right? Um, if someone's in their, their 20s or their 30s and they become widowed, uh, maybe they have a couple kids already, yeah, um, it makes sense for them to remarry in the Lord. And Paul even encourages it, uh, commands it. So this last comment in verse 40 where he says, and I think I too have the Spirit of God, Probably a reminder to the church that he is an apostle. Uh, There may have been some in the church, we see this reflected in 1 Corinthians a little bit, maybe even more so in 2 Corinthians. There might have been some in the church that were resistive to Paul's teaching, 
who, who weren't quite as respectful to, to Paul's teaching, and they may have, may have claimed to be led by the Spirit, and, and therefore they, they're not going to follow Paul, but, but because they're being led by the Spirit, uh, they have their own opinion. This is Paul's way of saying, yeah, that's, that's not going to work. Um, the Holy Spirit never contradicts Scripture, and Paul is writing Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there's no arguing with the Apostle Paul. That's just not going to work. This is a very difficult passage. If we had to summarize it, we would say Paul is telling the raw believers in Corinth that they are to hold off on marriage until they've had time to grow out of their worldliness and are no longer in their present crisis of being all over the place in their doctrine and practice and belief. As believers, they are not to hold on to anything in this world tightly because this world is passing away. And the most important thing is that, that should drive their life is following Christ faithfully. They must live well-ordered lives devoted to Jesus Christ. And then he concludes with some universal teaching on betrothal, marriage, the gift of celibacy, and widowhood. This passage is extremely difficult to exegete and to understand and to apply because, as always in the Bible, but especially in a place like this, we have to remember that the Bible was not written to us, it was written for us. Do we understand the difference? It was not written to us. This was written to the church in Corinth in the first century, somewhere between 53 and 55 AD. It was not written to us in Frankfurt in 2022, but it was written for us which means we have to, to do the, the hard work of, of understanding what it meant to the original readers first, and then we can make the transition from then to now and apply it to us here. Can, can you imagine, or, or do you see what the problem is? If, if we go to 1 Corinthians 7 and we lift out verse 27, and we just extract that and we take it over here and we try to put it in a flow chart on marriage, can you see the problem? with that, and people have tried to do that. The, the command then to everyone is, don't marry, ever. That doesn't work. We are not currently experiencing the same present distress that the believers were in Corinth, and this is a perfect example of why we always have to remember the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. Now, because we weren't and are not experiencing the same present distress, uh, the single person is not commanded to remain single. Single. That's not normative. What can we derive? What, what, can, what kind of application can we draw from that, that part? I would say this, that the New Testament considers an unhealthy church, false doctrine, and professing to be a Christian but living like you're not a Christian to be things that need immediate attention addressing these issues should take top priority, even before some things that are important. In other words, if we are all over the place, we need to get organized, meaning we need to order our lives based on the knowledge that comes from God. That's what this whole letter to this church was all about. I, I want you, I say this for your benefit, I want you to put things in good order. I want you to be devoted to Christ. And that's not going to happen until you have the knowledge of God, the truth of God. Paul's looking at this church where the members are all over the place and he's saying, I am giving you instruction from the Lord for your benefit. I'm promoting good order with the goal of securing your undivided devotion to the Lord. And he's doing that because he knows that knowledge of the truth brings order and enables people to live rightly before God. Listen to what Paul says in the preface at the very beginning of, of two other letters, two other churches. Philippians 1, 9 through 10. And it is my prayer that, you love, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge in all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Do you see the relationship between knowledge and being able to live rightly? Colossians 1, 9 through 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's almost like he's saying, I want you to gain knowledge so you can gain knowledge. But once again, do you see the relationship? I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will so that you can walk in a manner worthy of following Christ. Knowledge of the truth. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. A loose loose paraphrase of what Paul is saying to the church is this. You're all over the place. And I'm trying to help you. I'm giving you truth, instruction, and the truth of God so that you can put things in good order. When I get there, and when you get there, if you've put this into practice, then you'll be in a position to live rightly and follow Christ faithfully. So a lack of knowledge or ignorance, we could call that, a lack of knowledge or ignorance leads to confusion. It leads to being all over the place. A lack of knowledge about the things of God results in being all over the place. A, a 2022, July 2022 Gallup poll, so that's last month, so very current, showed that America's confidence and belief in the Bible is at an all-time low. Are we surprised? Not, not among just the general population, but listen to this, professing Christians, so people that say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, only 25% said it was the word of God. And that's not even, those are professing Christians. Who knows if they're, remember, not everyone who professes Christ possesses Christ, so we're not even sure if that's, that's all true believers. But even then, this isn't saying that they believe in inerrancy and inspiration. This is just saying they believe the Bible is, is the Bible. 25% of professing Christians. Other people were asked if the Bible was important. They said, yes, I believe it. It's important to me. But they couldn't name the first five books. Professors that, that have been teaching for years are seeing incoming freshmen at Bible colleges taking Bible classes, Christian colleges, Christian students coming in taking Christian classes on the Bible. And they're saying, it's at an all-time low. They really don't have any grasp of the content or the structure of Scripture. So there is very little belief in and very little knowledge of God's Word within the church and within our country. How would you describe the United States and the church within the United States right now? I would be comfortable with the phrase, all over the place. And it's because of a lack of knowledge of the word of God, the truth of God. The church, whether it is in Corinth or whether it is in the United States, cannot follow God rightly until she knows what following God rightly is. It is impossible without the knowledge of God. I'm always puzzled when I hear professing Christians rattle off this cliche. They say, uh, oh yeah, that, he's, he's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Have you heard that one? He's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And I think what they mean is he's so wrapped up in doctrine and theology and getting the Bible right and study and and trying to nail things down and getting things right that he just doesn't know how to follow Christ faithfully in the world. I have yet to meet someone whose knowledge of God's word has decreased their ability to follow Christ faithfully. I haven't met them. I have yet to meet someone whose increased grasp and knowledge of the Bible has resulted in them being less equipped to be a follower of Christ. Psalm 119, 97 through 104 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I hold back my feet from every evil way, in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Through your precepts I gain understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Do you see the relationship between knowledge of God's truth, knowledge of God's word, and living faithfully, right right living before God? They're inseparable. It is impossible to walk before God faithfully 
if we do not understand and have knowledge of what that is. Imagine for a moment that you were starting a brand new job and they, you showed up at this warehouse that was the biggest warehouse you've ever seen. You, you looked down and you really couldn't even see the far wall. The ceilings were higher than the sanctuary ceiling. It was stacked high with shelving and product and there were fork trucks lined up against the wall and loading docks as far as you could see. Just a huge warehouse. But no instructions. No signs. No arrows on the floor. No manuals. No handbooks. No supervisors. Nothing. And someone walks in with a bullhorn and says, All right, get to work. Um, okay. Uh, the, the, everybody could probably get busy and, and start working forklifts and, and moving product and loading or unloading trucks, but what, what would really be happening? They'd be all over the place. Because there was no knowledge of what get to work means. Unless God tells us, unless we know God's truth and allow our minds to be renewed by that truth, we're going to be all over the place. Faithful churches are churches that know God's word and have ordered their life according to that word. Faithful believers are believers who know God's word and have ordered their life according to that word. Now here's the good news. God has told us. Uh, in this example, there are signs. There is a supervisor. There are arrows. God has told us. The Bible is God's revelation to us. And praise God for his word. Doesn't that make sense that an almighty creator in, an, in, in his uh, purposes to communicate with the creature communicates in a way that is, can be grasped, grasped by us. It, it is recorded. It's, it's in print. We can learn it. We can read it. We can know it. We can study it. We can proclaim it. Here it is. Thank you, God. Thank you for not allowing this to just be a feeling that we have in our heart because we can get that wrong very easily and we can disagree with one another. But no, here it is. That's the good news. It has to get into our minds before it can reside in our hearts. Let no one deceive you. It has to get in our minds before it can reside in our hearts and we can live it out. So if you're here this morning, if you're a believer, and you know the Bible, but in your heart you're saying, I really don't know it enough. But the problem, or maybe you're a new believer and you say, I would love to know the Bible better, but that's just so big. I've tried before. There's a lot there. There was a high school student who began a summer job and he was going to go work on a farm. And on his way out early that morning, his dad stopped him and he said, do whatever he tells you to do. Uh, there were a lot of high schoolers that wanted this job. You're getting paid really good money. I know him, that's how you got this job. Just do whatever he says, you're getting well paid. He said, I will. So he showed up at the farm and the first thing the farmer said to him was, I want you to paint everything on the farm. And he looked around, and this farmer had a large property. There were several barns, there were outbuildings, there was a corn crib, there was a machine shed. There was, there was just, and, and the student was overwhelmed, and he said, I, I'm only here for the summer. I know. Get to work. And so he handed him the ladder and the paint and the brushes. I want you to scrape everything and get to work. And after the first day, he had barely made a dent. He thought, this is not going to happen. After the second day, Again, not feeling well at all about the task before him. Third day, fourth day, finally he said, oh, I actually got one of these smaller buildings done. And then he just started to get into a rhythm. And he put earbuds in and he started to listen to music and he, didn't, he stopped thinking about the enormity of the task. He stopped thinking about how long it would take him and he just got to work. And before you know it, he was up and down the ladder. He was in between every single rafter tail up there and he was just... And all of a sudden, after a few weeks, he was on his last wall and he realized, I'm going to finish today. It is possible to read through the entire Bible. It's going to be discouraging if you constantly look at how much is still before you. If it's going to be discouraging, if you feel like, I'm not retaining this. But if you find a rhythm, 
and you get to work, it can be done. You can learn God's work. You can internalize it. Don't give up. If you are doing this, if you stay diligent and you will make progress, the payoff is huge. You're going to start living rightly before the Lord. You're going to have a clean conscience because you're, you're going to be living in the will of God. You're going to be able to help others understand God's word. Before you know it, you're not going to be all over the place when it comes to doctrine and knowledge. I remember as a young student, as a young adult, somebody would bring up a topic and I would say, well, what is that? I don't even know what you're talking about, let alone have a position on it. Before long, you're going to know what it is and you're going to have a biblical position on it. Your worldview is going to change from a secular worldview or your personal worldview to Christ's worldview. It will happen. He will sanctify you through his truth. Things that used to be, you used to be indifferent about will become important. Your life will be well-ordered according to the truth of God. Now, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you need to know something. You need to know that uh, you, you cannot make any progress following Christ until you're in Christ. You need to know that, that you're going to forever be all over the place regarding doctrine and, and knowledge of God and living rightly until you're in Christ. Because the things of God are revealed to the people of God through the Spirit of God. So you need to know that if you're not in Christ, you're still dead in your sins. I'm, I'm going to do the work of an evangelist here. The, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Death and dying apart from God's grace, apart from His forgiveness. And that means upon death you will go to a place called hell. It is a place of eternal punishment, eternal torment, and it is a just punishment for sin. Jesus is the only one who can save people from the reality of sin and an eternity in the lake of fire. Jesus is the only way of forgiveness. Jesus is the only way to life, the only way to the Father. Scripture teaches that whoever... That means anyone who repents of their sin and turns to Jesus in faith, God will forgive them and welcome them into his kingdom. Is there anyone here today that has not repented and trusted in Jesus Christ? You cannot save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. Being in church will not save you. Only being in Christ Knowing the pastor or knowing other believers will not save you, only knowing Christ. Doing good works will not save you, only the work of Christ on the cross. Believing in a false religious system will not save you, only believing in Jesus. It is only the righteousness of Christ credited to you and the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross applied to you through faith that will save you. So I implore you, Turn to him today, and you will be saved. And know this, we're talking about the knowledge of God, know this, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And you sanctify us by this truth. Father, we're praying in faith. Help us know and understand your word so that we can live out our lives rightly before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.